0: Let me pray. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the Lord of ages and that uh, you've, uh, in the fullness of time he came, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. We thank you for his death for us. We thank you for his glorious resurrection. We thank you that he is enthroned at your right hand and that he ever lives to make intercession for us. We pray as we continue to think about worship and as what it means to be worshippers of the living God, we pray that you would teach us more deeply what that means uh, this afternoon as we continue to study together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So once again, um, my basic paradigm is to think through these various questions of liturgical theology by thinking about creation, and thinking about liturgical patterns in the original creation, creation not being an a liturgical reality, but having liturgical elements and patterns built into it. Uh, it's a temple. it's dialogic. The history of man with God is dialogic. Uh, last, uh, this morning, we looked at sacrifice as a part of the pattern of the actual creation, um, oh, the action of creation. And we want to look at um, liturgical time this afternoon. And uh, obviously God creates time in the uh, beginning of Genesis. Uh, We don't have the word time. When the Bible talks about time, it tends to talk about time in more concrete ways with periods of time being specified. Uh, And there are many different time periods and time designations that are used in Genesis 1. Um, God, first of all, calls light into existence, separates light and darkness, and puts them into a rhythm, a repetitive rhythm of darkness and light, evening and morning. Those are two uh, periods of time that are designated. Together, day and night form a day. Evening and morning form a day. Uh, And that becomes the the period in which God works. Uh, God isn't bound by time. He's, it's a creature of his. He's the, the Lord of days, who's created days. He's the creator of days. Uh, but once he's created this pattern, then he operates within that pattern. And he does different things on different days. He does certain things at the beginning of the day, and then certain things at the close of the day. He speaks at the beginning of the day. He sees at the end of the day and evaluates things to be good. Uh, and uh, But it's not just the days uh, and nights, evenings and mornings that he creates, but we're told in day 4, beginning in verse 14 of Genesis 1, "...let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, uh, and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, and it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night." He made the stars also, and God placed them in the expanse of the heaven to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. I stopped myself before I... And God saw that it was good. Sorry, it left you hanging. (laughs) Is this going to be good or not? I don't know yet. Okay, so there are uh, different time designations there. Uh, Day and night uh, are repeated. And now the lights of the heavens are separating those. But we also have for years, uh, we have the moon created. It governs the night, and of course the moon goes through phases. We're not told that here exactly, but the moon has its own temporal rhythm uh, that uh, creates the month. Uh, And the sun has its own temporal rhythm that forms the year. So we have, just in those specific references to time, we have this complex uh, temporality. It's Time is not just an empty container in Genesis 1. It's not, a, uh, it's not pictured as a seamless flow, the way we might tend to think about it. But it's already punctuated and articulated into different, uh, different uh, segments. Right from the beginning, it's articulated into smaller segments. The day and the night, two segments of time, and together make one day. Uh, segments that are involve longer periods, the uh, months implied, and the years which are specifically mentioned. And then, of course, the creation week comes to its completion on the seventh day when God designates that as the day of ceasing. And so we have, through the course of the creation account, we have the formation of this other segment of time, which is the week. Um, and you could you could kind of tease out other rhythms of time that are going on within the creation account, and again, implied, not, not explicitly stated. But you have, um, as soon as other things, as soon as things begin to fill in the creation, then those have their own patterns of time. He on, on day three, God calls plants from the ground. And those plants uh, bud, flower, produce fruit. They have leaves that, that uh, grow old and fall. And they go through a life cycle. Uh, the same thing is true of the sea creatures that he calls into being on day five, and the birds. They have their own life cycle that don't match up with each other. They don't match up with the life cycle of the plants. They don't match up with the life cycles of uh, the uh, or the, the the regular patterns of the sun and the moon. Um, that's another kind of rhythm within the world that is uh, that is uh, uh, built into. God's creation. And then God creates land animals, human beings, and of course human beings are not only functioning according to those natural clocks of the sun and the moon and the stars, which already has, the natural clocks have a a variety of different uh, levels of temporality, but human beings create their own temporalities. We we create the weekend. We create a, a temporal segment called the weekend conference. We have a little temporal segment called the afternoon lecture. That's a little segment of time that we are uh, that we're governing and forming and shaping out of the, out of the time out of, out of the time that God has created. Uh, there, uh, one of the objections to a literal reading of Genesis one has always been. This goes back to the Church Fathers that light is created before the lights that shed light. So, um, how do you deal with that? Augustine says, "You've got uh, lights that's created on the first day. You don't have anything that's bearing light until the fourth day. That, to Augustine, means that the light of the first day must not be uh, visible light. It must be the illuminated, the illumination of the angels. the The knowledge of the angels is what uh, what uh, the first day is talking about. Uh, didn't know there were angels, but apparently Genesis one is Genesis one doesn't talk about any angels, but it's apparently talking about." The, uh, the knowledge of angels when it talks about light. Uh, it's a, a spiritual light, not the physical light. And then perhaps on day four, God creates the, the physical lights and there's actually light shed. But I think that that uh, misses what I think is the, the kind of dramatic movement of Genesis one, um, where the, uh, the, the, movement is, the movement is one of God delegating authority to his cre- creation to govern the world and to govern time, so think about what 's happening in the first three days of the week. Uh, God says, "Let there be light and there was light." He p- puts this rhythm of uh, darkness and light. Um, who is governing the shining and the darkening of whatever light is light source there is? Uh, there's, there's no real choice but to say that God is doing that. God is directly managing the sunrise and the sunset, the, the light time and the dark time. He's the direct Lord of time during the first half of the week. Uh, and what's, in, what's happening in the middle of the week when he creates the heavenly lights is that God is delegating that authority over time to the sun, moon, and stars. Now these lights in the heavens are going to do what God has been doing. They're going to be governors over the light and the darkness. They're going to be separating the light from the darkness. That's God's job. That was day one job, to separate the light and the darkness and to set them up in this rhythm of daytime and nighttime. Now, God's not going to do that directly anymore. He's giving that authority and that power to the sun and moon To govern and to separate the light from the darkness. That's uh, verse 18. He plays these lights in the firmament. uh, To give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night. To separate the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good. Um, Now you have created things. Who are carrying out godlike activities. It's not the only time that happens in the creation account. I mean the fact that God doesn't say let there be plants and there are plants. It's not what he does. He speaks to the earth and says, "Let the earth produce and sprout plants." He doesn't say, "Let there be fish." He says, "He speaks to the to the uh, waters. Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures." There's, in some way, there's a now a cooperation uh, between God who's speaking to these created, already created things, and He's bestowing the power on them to participate in their own fulfillment. Uh, earth is fulfilled by producing plants and is capable of that fulfillment only because God speaks to it and summons the plants from the earth. It's not going to be able to do that without the word of God. But God is, uh, God is, uh, uh, is still um, giving the power to participate in the fulfillment of creation to, uh, to the earth. I mean, that's the, first, that's the first step in the second half of the week, the forming half of the week and the filling half of the week. The transition happens on day three when God speaks to the earth. This is the second phase of creation, the filling part. And the first moment of that second phase, God doesn't do directly. He speaks to the earth and the earth sprouts up with these things. The earth begins to fill itself, empowered by the word of God. Uh, this is a variation of what I said last evening. Uh, the God that we worship is a God who's glorified by bestowing glory. The God who we worship is a God who is, shows his power by empowering, not by, uh, you know, to, to cite Jeff Myers again, not by sucking power from everything else, but by bestowing the power uh, to be and to grow and to produce on created things. Well, I think that's what's happening when God sets up these lights in the heavens. So you have this complex, um, by the end of the creation week, you have this complex, multi-layered understanding of time, uh, lots of different rhythms going on together, uh, many of them that are explicitly laid out, but explicitly mentioned, others that are implied by the creation of different forms that have their own temporal rhythms. Um, now... Uh, I think that Genesis one also indicates that that complex temporal rhythm, that complex of temporal rhythms. uh, I just add a footnote here. Jeremy Begbie, if you don't know his work, uh, theology, music, and time, uh, does a a, has some really interesting comments on how uh, experienced temporality, real temporality, real time, is uh, musical in its complexity, think about a a symphony, uh, and the different temporal patterns that are going on in a symphony. You can take out one thread, you can take out the, the French horns, and the French horns are playing at certain times and they're resting at certain times and they're joining with other horns at certain times and they're backing up some strings at certain times. And that's a particular rhythm within the very complex rhythm of all the other instruments that are playing at different times you have melodic rhythms, the melodic motifs are introduced, they disappear they 're introduced with variation, they disappear they 're introduced with more variation they 're reintroduced with variation you 've got uh, you 've got a time signature that lays out a kind of uh, regular beat. you have other other uh, rhythmical patterns that are going on. all of those different kinds of temporality are all going on at the same time, and that 's part of what makes the beauty of the symphony and, and part of Begley's point is that um, this doesn't make for irrationality, all this, compl- all, all this complex overlapping interpenetrating time. It makes for um, a very complex kind of rationality. Now, that's not the way we think about time. We think, tend to think about time as clock time. The beating of the clock is real time. But that's really just one rhythm among thousands of rhythms that we've decided to use in order to coordinate our, our activities so that we all show up in the train station when the train is actually going to be there. Uh, We have that because we can do that because we've got schedules and we've got mechanical clocks who are keeping a regular rhythm. We don't have to be like the late 19th century Russians who had to show up sometime early in the morning hoping that some point during the day the train is going to come by. (laughs) You don't know when, because there's not a schedule and there's no coordinated timekeeping. There aren't time zones. Or if they're time zones, they're you know, they're like um, Kerry would have its own time zone, and Raleigh would have its own time zone, and Durham would have its own time zone. Up until the up until the introduction of uh, transcontinental trains, that was that was the system, that was the timekeeping system in the U.S. Uh, maybe not that diversified, but you had lots of different time zones. So why did I say that? Oh, uh, we think it. Yeah, that's. We think, of, we think of time as having this kind of thin regularity to it, and that's real time, and all the other ways we think about time are just kind of uh, you know human creations. But in fact, real experience time, Begbie is saying, is more, more like a piece of music. It has a complex temporality. I think Genesis 1 fits with that notion of time. Um, beyond that, I think Genesis 1 gives us a couple indications that uh, God created time God created the, uh, the, uh, the lights to govern time, not just to, cr- not just to uh, keep track of day-to-day activities, but God created segments of time to govern and to pattern liturgical life. That is to say, time is liturgical from its origins. It's not, uh, it's not created in, again, you're not, it's not created as this thin beating of the clock and liturgical patterns are layered on top of that, uh, but God created time and the uh, passage of time and the segments of time from the beginning intentionally to govern liturgical assemblies. Why do I say that? Uh, two main reasons. One is the... Uh, rationale that he gives, the explanation he gives for the lights that are in the firmament of the heavens in Genesis 1.14. They are set up in the firmament of the heavens to separate the day and the night. That's, again, a divine activity that's now been delegated to the lights in the heavens. And they are going to, going to be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. The days and years uh, make sense to us obvious we, we we know that the we know that the day is over because the sun has made a complete circuit of the sky okay yes i know the earth t- turns but uh, i believe the sun rises and it sets I, I know it does cuz i see it every day almost every day not today the sun rises and sets and when it comes it comes back to where it started then we know that it, it's been a it's been a day so days are governed by these lights in the heavens Years are governed, that's harder to see. You need some specialized equipment or at least a trained eye to see how the sun is shifting its position through the course of the year. But when it comes back to the position that it was in in the spring equinox the previous year, then you've had a complete, you've had a complete annual cycle of the sun. Uh, the moon is uh, for keeping, uh, the phases of the moon is for designating those, the passage of the, uh, of the months. The Lord also sets up these lights for signs. Signs of what? Signs that will indicate my uh, future. I can determine the time of my birth and where is the sun in relation to Jupiter and which of the constellations is the sun passing through at the time of my birth, which is the zodiac? No, that's probably not what it means. Um, You don't really know, do you? (laughs) You don't really know if I'm kidding. I could have kept that up for a while. Oh, okay. Astrology is okay now. All right. This This is the deep weird that Jim Jordan always talked about. Now it's astrology. But it does seem, I mean, you can look at the Old Testament and there are people who are able to look at the sky and there are things in the sky that are portents. I mean, you think up until the beginning of the New Testament, obviously. Uh, there are magi who are watching the sky from somewhere in the east. And they come from the east because they see some kind of new light in the sky that's a signal. They know it's a signal for the birth of a king. And maybe they have some kind of prophecy. I mean, the Jews have spread everywhere by the time that the magi are traveling toward Bethlehem. So maybe they've got Micah. They don't have Micah because then they would know to go to Bethlehem. They may have some prophecy from uh, the Old Testament, that there's going to be a light shining. They may have Balaam's prophecy about the star rising in the heavens. This is the king that's coming. This is the king we've been hoping for. And it's signaled by the appearance of a light somewhere in the sky. Okay. Uh, so that seems to be something God does, at least in the Old Covenant. He's sending these kinds of signs in the heavens. Uh, we could also uh, conclude more generally that the heavenly lights speak in some fashion. Uh, there's been a long-standing tradition of associating the twelve constellations of the zodiac with the twelve tribes of Israel. There's at least a numerical connection, and there are speculative, somewhat speculative efforts to try to correlate, for example, the the blessings of Jacob, the twelve tribes, with the with the signs of the zodiac, the blessings of Jacob at the end of G- Genesis, uh, or uh, uh, Moses at the end of Deuteronomy. You have these uh, possible correlations with different between different tribes and the signs of the Zodiac. Uh, And so uh, that would fit with other things that we find in the Bible. Uh, Abraham is told that his children are going to be like the stars of the heavens. Joseph dreams of the sun, moon, and 12 stars, 11, sorry, bowing down to him. Are those stars or those constellations bowing down? I think probably constellations. How do you know if a star is bowing? I mean, how, how can you tell? But you can tell if a constellation is bowing because it's, it's more like a figure. I think that's the, that's the dream of Joseph. I think he sees his, his father, the sun, his mother, the moon, and the 12 constellations of the zodiac, or the 12 major constellations that are honoring him. Um, they're all descendants of Abraham, and so they're like stars in the heavens. So in some way, there's a, there's a communication coming from the heavens uh, that teaches us things uh, about God, at least it teaches us about the glory and the power and the wisdom and the beauty of God. We look at the uh, heavenly lights, and we see, some kind of, uh, we see some kind of partial glimpse of the glory and the light that is God himself. Uh, if God is uh, creating this light, then he must surpass it um, infinitely, we might say. Okay. But what about seasons? God has set up the lights in the heavens for signs for days for years and for seasons and uh, our our instinct I think is to think again in, in terms of natural uh, natural phases of time uh, you know autumn, winter, spring, summer those are the seasons of the year uh, that the sun, moon, and stars uh, govern and that's that's true um, the uh the, the movements of the movements of the heavenly bodies are determining the different seasons, uh, but that's not the way the word that's uh, the Hebrew word behind seasons is typically used uh, in the Old Testament. Um, the word is moed, plural is moedim, and that's the word that is used in the uh, Torah to describe the appointed times when God has designated convocations and times of rest and times of festivity for Israel to uh, gather in, uh, at the central sanctuary and uh, eat, drink, and rejoice in his presence. So uh, Leviticus 23, I read this at uh, Sext, but uh, I'll read a few verses. The Lord spoke again to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed times, same word, which you, have, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations. My appointed times are these, for six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath of the Lord, your, to the Lord in all your dwellings. These are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. So moed, all the way through there, whenever it's, it uses the phrase appointed times, that's moedim, Uh, That's the same word that's being used in Genesis 1.14 uh, to describe what the sun, moon, and stars are governing. They're governing the moedim, the appointed times, or the, uh, I would say, times for appointment. Not just that God has designated these times, but these are times that are designated for meeting. Um, Tent of meeting is is, uh, ohel moed, ohel moed, which is uh, the same word, a tent of meeting is tent of appointment. It's the tent where God is gonna be present. And the times are the times when God is going to accept his people and gather his people at his house. Um, so uh, the, um, Moed, is a, a, a Moed is a specific appointed time that God has designated for these festivals. And he is, uh, it carries the connotation that this is a time when God is going to meet with his people. And what Genesis 1.14 tells us is that the lights in the sky, in the heavens, are for that purpose to designate and to mark out those appointed times. So at least one of the functions of the, of the heavenly bodies is to keep liturgical time. They're all up there to keep time. Uh, or they're up there to keep time in general, as we've been talking about, and for other purposes, but they're up there also to uh, to be a liturgical clock. From the beginning of creation, the sky is a liturgical clock, not just a natural clock. So, that's one indication that we have a, uh, a that time itself is liturgical, that God created time as a as a, uh, um, as a liturgical reality. Not just, not just uh, again, uh, go back to my, my, my uh, regular denial. It's not that we have natural time with liturgical festivals and liturgical events that are kind of a second layer on top of that and icing on top of the cake. No, God has created the world with this liturgical pattern built into it. The other indication of that is the Sabbath day after God has finished his work of creating, all the heavens of the earth are completed and all their hosts, and by the seventh day, God had completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day with all his work which he had done. God blessed the seventh day and, and uh, sanctified it, because in it he rested from his work which God had created and made. So it's a day of ceasing. It's the word Sabbath, what the word Sabbath means, uh, and he uh, sanctifies this seventh day, this day of ceasing, which is also a day of completion. It's not just a day when God stops doing stuff, stops doing the creating stuff. It's not just a day of, uh, of, uh, of stopping. It's also a day of completion and fulfillment and finishing, which uh, I think if we look at that in the context of other parts of the Bible, it's a day in which God takes delight in the creation that he's made. Uh, It's at the end of that six-day work that God sees all things that he's made, and behold, it is very good. Not just good, but very good. And that uh, is uh, the last statement just before we are told about this seventh day, uh, which is a day of uh, uh, delight and uh, rejoicing in the creation that he's now completed. So uh, uh, that, gives, that designates a week, uh, and at least by the time you get to the Exodus, at the time of the Exodus, human beings are patterning their time after, this, uh, after God's creating time. Okay? Uh, maybe, maybe, the Reformed tradition is right in saying that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance and that from Adam on, uh, human beings lived in this pattern of Sabbath ceasing and six days of labor. The first time we actually see people keeping Sabbath and observing a day of ceasing is after the Exodus. In Exodus 16, when the uh, people come out of Egypt, uh, manna is provi- uh, the Lord provides manna for them, and they're supposed to collect for six days. Uh, and then uh, take they're supposed to cease on the seventh day. Um, that's the first explicit indication that uh, human beings are, uh, are, are ceasing along with God. I think we should take that as uh, Israel, maybe human beings before that, but Israel is being elevated so that they share in uh, God's delight in his creation, they share in his finished finishing of creation. They share in his ceasing. God has opened up his Sabbath to include them. And what that means, of course, is that the creation week uh, becomes the pattern for the human week and becomes a liturgical pattern for Israel because the Sabbath day is a day, a, a day with an appointed time. The, the Sabbath day is an appointed time when Israel is supposed to meet in holy convocation in imitation, of course, of what God did in the beginning, uh, in the in the first week of creation. Okay, um, so that's another indication that we have this we have this liturgical pattern that's not just it doesn't it doesn't appear to be a liturgical pattern at the beginning, but that created pattern becomes a template for the organizing for uh, the organizing of Israel's weeks, uh, at least after the Exodus. Uh, and after the ten words are given from Sinai, and they're commanded to work six days and take one day of rest. Um, the Sabbath is a is a privilege for Israel. The Sabbath is a a privilege of sharing in God's finished work, even though Israel's work is not finished. It's a privilege of sharing in God's enthronement in His creation his delight in his creation. Uh, The Sabbath is also an act of faith for Israel. Uh, To keep time in this way means that they have to trust God to supply seven days of goods and sustenance in payment for six days of labor, as it were in payment. They're going to work six days. So you, This is true in the wilderness, right? They're going to work six days. And, but on the sixth day, they're supposed to collect double. They collect double on any other day. It rots overnight. So you can't, can't do that every day. You can't store up manna. But somehow, on the sixth day, you can. Okay. And uh, this requires trust in the Word of God. Trust in the Word of God to provide the daily bread that he's promised trust in the word of God to provide bread even when, uh, even when you're not going out to collect it, that he's going to supply enough on the sixth day so that you can, uh, you can uh, uh, have enough for the, for the seventh day as well. Okay. So that, happ- that begins in the wilderness when they're getting miracle bread from heaven. But the Sabbath, of course, continues to be kept when Israel enters the land, and it gets elaborated. The Sabbath is really the core of the whole Israelite calendar. There's Sabbath patterns, seven-day patterns all over the Israelite calendar. It's the, it's the, it's the fundamental um, building block of the entire calendar, uh, and not only of the uh, annual calendar, the different feasts, but also larger patterns of time. Because Israel is not only keeping time in years, but they're keeping time in seven-year cycles because they have sabbatical years, and then jubilee cycles. So a super kind of sabbatical year after seven. Sabbath years, and then the 50th year, you have the proclamation of the Jubilee. Um, And all of those are uh, implying or symbolizing the same reality. If you're Israel, keeping the Sabbath days is entering into the Lord's completion and finishing and delight of creation. Uh, They're privileged to do that. Uh, Celebrating or keeping those days means profound acts of faith, you do it once a week, you know, maybe if there isn't enough to go around on, the, on day seven, then you can get through one day and then you go back to work the next, on, on Monday or Sunday, the first day of the week, and you can begin to, uh, you, you won't starve. Keeping a Sabbath year? Hmm, right? The Lord promises you're going to supply plenty so that they can have enough food through the Sabbath year when they're supposed to leave their, plant, their, their uh, fields fallow. Uh, maybe their Sabbath years are doing it in cycles, and different different fields are doing it at different times. Perhaps that's a pattern that would require a little less uh, confidence, but you're still having to show a self-restraint.'t you can't, you can't maximize production out of the land because you're not allowed to plant and harvest at least in some fields you're not allowed to plant and harvest in the, in the seventh year. So you can you can't get every you could get more out of the land if you didn't keep the Sabbath years. No doubt, this is part of the reason why Israel doesn't keep the Sabbath years. <laughs> they rarely do. They never keep the Jubilee, apparently. Um, uh, but uh, it's you know it's it takes a great act of self-restraint and faith to believe that God is going to supply all that they need for seven years in uh, in uh, with six years of labor invested. Um, and Israel often doesn't have that kind of confidence in God. It's an indication, I think, that the produce of the land is just as much bread from heaven as manna. Right? Uh, it's mediated bread from heaven. <laughs> it doesn't just show up on the ground like manna did. But the only reason there's grain that you can make into flour and put into bread, the only reason is because God is showering down gifts from heaven, the gifts of sunlight and the gifts of rain, uh, and just his blessing on top of those things. Uh, those is much mir- uh, all bread is miracle bread. All of it is a gift from God, and Israel is reminded of that uh, every time they keep Sabbath, and especially when they keep Sabbath, Sabbath years. So when Israel begins to keep Sabbath, they conform their time, their weekly cycles, to the time of creation. God's pattern becomes their pattern of timekeeping, which is a liturgical pattern of timekeeping because it's designated the seventh day as the day of holy convocation when they gather uh, in order to give praise and thanks to God. Uh, not every culture organizes its time like that. right? So I've talked about creation. I've talked about how Israel is uh, patterning itself after the original creation, uh, after the original creation, uh, uh, God's pattern in the original creation. But uh, sinful human beings and sinful human cultures don't keep to that pattern of time. Uh, if you're an Israelite and you own slaves or have servants in your house, you cannot... Keep them working seven days. Uh, you may not, I should say. You can. <laughs> uh, ability is there. But uh, you may not. You ought not to do that. Everywhere else in the ancient world. I think the Sabbath, I think this is right. This is, a, if I'm remembering rightly from a book by, uh, I think his name is Dwight Baker. Uh, Tight Fists, Open Hands, a book on the economics of the, of the Torah. Uh, and he says the Sabbath is an utterly unique institution in ancient Israel. No other ancient people had that institution. Uh, which means if you are a Moabite and you've got a servant in the house, uh, you can keep him working every single day. He has no right to ask for or to get time off You can extract everything you can out of him. You can extract everything you want out of the land because there are no patterns of Sabbath years. Um, So the, the whole keeping of Sabbath, which is a liturgical pattern for Israel, six days of labor, one day of rest and worship, that liturgical pattern expands out in Israel's life to be a pattern of a generous and just society. If they're keeping Sabbath as they ought, then they're not going to abuse their servants, their workers, they're not going to abuse their animals. You know, if you're a Moabite, you can get seven days work out of a a good donkey. You're not allowed to do that if you're an Israelite. Animals get Sabbath uh, according to the fourth commandment. Animals are supposed to be given rest. Uh, You know, somebody shows up at your house as a guest, you can't put them to work. If it's the Sabbath day, the stranger within your gates, everybody is supposed to get rest. Everybody is kind of on the same level on the Sabbath day because everyone is granted the same rest. Uh, And everyone has that uh, opportunity for sharing in, delight in the creation, joy in the creation. Uh, And um, there's there's a strong kind of, uh, aspect of uh, social and political justice that comes out of the keeping of the Sabbath. And it's all based on that liturgical pattern that originates in creation that Israel is caught up into, and as long as they conform their timekeeping to God's timekeeping, uh, they're keeping this liturgical pattern, and that establishes the kind of society and polity that God delights in. Yeah. And, and other people don't do that. So... Um, the, uh, this is a, goes back to my original thesis I Remember, way back yesterday morning. I repeated it this morning. Uh, God, is, God has certain liturgical patterns within the creation. Human beings distort those liturgical patterns. Uh, the liturgical patterns of Israel put these things back the way they ought to be. Uh, 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 Israel's liturgical timekeeping uh, unbends time. Puts time back into joint. That's what I was trying to say. Time is out of joint. Sin puts time out of joint. And Israel's timekeeping puts time back into joint. So it's following the, the, the rhythms of God himself. Okay. Uh, as I said, and I read a little bit of this at the, the uh, at Sext, uh, that's not the, the Sabbath is not the only uh, appointed time of, uh, of Israel's calendar. They don't just have a weekly convocation, but they have uh, various festivals and patterns going on. So it, it, uh, the, the, uh, they have this weekly cycle going. I, I should uh, mention holy convocation. That's holy assembly. That means people are getting together. And if it's a holy assembly, that means that it's uh, somehow devoted to acts of worship consecrated assembly That doesn't mean that every Israelite ended up at the tabernacle every week not possible for that to happen or at the temple later on uh, imposs- physically impossible for that to happen um, you know, people could live a week's walk away from the tabernacle uh, they'd never get there Or they get there and, you know, anyway. It doesn't work. Uh, That's not what's going on in the Holy Convocation. Yet there's some kind of gathering that's required. From the time Israel goes into the land, they're supposed to be assembling every Sabbath day. And I think what they're doing is assembling in local communities. There are Levites scattered all over the land. There are uh, Levitical cities all over the land. And those Levites are, among other things, presiding at some kind of, liturgical, instructional assembly every, every week. They don't offer sacrifice. They shouldn't offer sacrifice because that's, the, that's only done at the one central sanctuary. Um, but uh, they're doing other sorts of things, prayer, instruction in Torah probably, perhaps song at some points is introduced into these assemblies. Um, they're doing kind of what we do every Sunday, And they start doing that as soon as they get into the land. But that's just one cycle. You've got the weekly cycle going. And then Leviticus rather 23 gives this annual cycle of feasts, beginning with Passover and unleavened bread in the first month. We have a feast of the first sheaf, beginning in verse 9. We have the feast of Pentecost, which is counting from 50 50 days after the day when the first chief is brought in, beginning in verse 15. That'll be in the third month. Uh, You have a series of seventh-month festivals. The first day of the seventh month, Leviticus 23-24, is the Feast of Trumpets. The tenth day of the seventh month, in verse 27, is the Day of Atonement. Uh, and then, the beginning of verse thirty-three and the following verses, are describing the um, the uh, celebration of the feast of booths, tabernacles, or um, of uh, ingathering. So you have a weekly a weekly cycle going. Overarching that, you have this annual cycle of feasts that goes from the first day, first month of the liturgical calendar, which is in the spring, Passover. And ends in the seventh month of the liturgical calendar, which would be in the fall at the time of harvest. You have at least those two. And then when you look at um, numbers, you see that there are some other festival cycles going on at the same time. Numbers 28 and 29 lay out the required offerings for all of the designated times of worship. Um, so this is, these are the things that the priests would be doing at the central sanctuary every, uh, every Sabbath day. They would be doing certain kinds of offerings, <coughs> a certain number of offerings. And these are following, these are following the uh, festival calendar that's in, laid out in Leviticus 23, but they're adding a couple of things. So if you look at uh, Numbers 28, um, there's a daily offering Uh, in verses 1 through 8, you have a Sabbath offering with an extra lamb that's offered in the Sabbath day. At the beginning of each month, verse 11, you shall present an ascension offering to the Lord, two bulls and one ram, seven male lambs, one year old without defect, and then certain tribute offerings that go with that. That's a pretty massive offering. Two bulls and one ram and seven male lambs. That happens every month because every Month begins with a new moon festival where the altar is stoked up and the offerings are increased. So now you have a monthly cycle on alongside the weekly cycle and the annual cycle. All of these different liturgical patterns are going simultaneously in ancient Israel. And if you study out the different uh, accounts of these offering, uh, of these festivals, there's uh, a list of uh, a few of them in Exodus 23 there's a list of uh, and, and, and a description of what's done uh, on the festivals in Leviticus 23 uh, Deuter- uh, Numbers 28 and 29 is giving you the, the different offerings that are offered on each of these festival days or fest- during these festival weeks uh, Deuteronomy 14 and 15 uh, 16 is laying out diff- from a different perspective giving the, an account of the same festivals uh, and when you put all that together, uh, I think you can uh, kind of tease out a couple of principles that are guiding how these festivals are, what these festivals are doing, and what they're marking, what they're celebrating. They're put into this annual, annual rhythm, monthly rhythm, weekly rhythm. But uh, the principle behind it is, I think, twofold. One is the annual rhythm is following basically the the uh, agricultural year from planting to the first harvest to the final harvest. You have harvests of grain and barley earlier than the harvest of grapes, which comes in the Feast of Ingathering. Uh, so you're following the, uh, the, uh, the liturgical calendar is, is, a, is, is tracking with the agricultural year. The natural cycles of planting and harvesting uh, intersect with the festivals of Israel. And then you have a historical dimension each of the major festivals is commemorating some great event in Israel's history. Uh, Passover is obvious. That's the deliverance from Egypt. Uh, Pentecost is the second of the three feasts that every Israelite male is supposed to appear uh, 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 when he's supposed to appear at the sanctuary. Pentecost is the, celebrates, historically celebrates the arrival at Sinai and the gift of the law at Sinai. And then one of the customs of the Feast of Booths is to set up booths or some kind of structure, tents that they would live in, Sukkoth, that they would live in uh, during the week of the Feast of Booths that would commemorate the wandering in the wilderness when they were all living in tents and booths all the time. Okay, So you're reliving each year. as, As you go through the agricultural year, you're also repeating and commemorating and reliving the entire... Early history, the, ty- the founding history of the nation of Israel, uh, from the Passover through Sinai uh, into the uh, uh, into the uh, into the wilderness. Um, both of those things are going on, and the and the feasts of Israel kind of harmonizing the natural cycles of creation with the historical events of Israel's history. Those two things are done simultaneously, and again, another sign that you have this interweaving is. Of liturgical time and what we think of as natural or uh, yeah natural time. Uh, some of these festivals also have eschatological dimensions. In other words, they're not just commemorating things in the past, but they're uh, they're anticipating events of the future, promises of the future. And this, I think, is particularly evident in the way that the feast of Booths is celebrated. Uh, this comes out in uh, Numbers twenty nine which describes the, the, the offerings that are supposed to be made at the Feast of Booths. Beginning in verse 12, Then on the fifteenth day of the seventh month you shall have a holy convocation, you shall do no laborious work, you shall have, observe a, a feast to the Lord for seven days. So it's a kind of, um, you have the seven day segment again, a sabbatical kind of segment of time. And you shall present a burnt offering, an ascension offering, an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord. Thirteen bowls, two rams, fourteen male lambs, one, one year old, which are without defect, and then the grain offerings and uh, so on. And there's some other offerings in there, sin offering. On the second day, twelve bowls, two rams, fourteen male lambs, one year old without defect, and the grain offering. The third day, verse 20, eleven bowls, and you're moving down one, from, uh, you're moving down one by one from uh, the... Uh, the 13 bowls of the first day until you get the seventh day, verse 32, when you have seven bowls. <coughs> you total those up, and over the course of those, uh, those seven days of the festival, you have offered 70 bowls. Um, and 70 is, uh, from early in Genesis, 70 is a number associated with the number of the nations. The table of nations in Genesis 10 lists roughly 70 Depending on how you count, 70, uh, 70 nations. Uh, 70 becomes a number, the rounded number associated with the, with the number of the nations. When, when Israel uh, goes down into Egypt, there are 70, uh, 70 from, the, from the loins of Jacob because they're, they are Israel, they're the 12 tribes, uh, but they're also the microcosm of the nations. There's 70 of them that go down and go through this experience in Egypt. So you've offered 70 bowls representing the 70 nations of the world, on the Feast of Booths, uh, during the Feast of Booths. This is a commemoration of what happened to Israel in the wilderness, but it's also an anticipation of what's going to happen to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are going to be gathered in, harvested. Paul describes his own ministry of the, in the Gospel among the Gentiles as a kind of priestly ministry, where he's going around offering up the nations as sacrifices to the Lord. Uh, and you have an anticipation, a sign of that that's happening in the Feast of Booths. So there's this eschatological dimension to uh, all these festivals. The festivals, I think, are also functioning like the sacrifices as memorials every year when you do Passover. If you're, do, if you're celebrating Passover and you're in exile, you wouldn't do it the same way. You wouldn't have the temple to go to, but you'd still celebrate Passover in some form in exile. And what are you thinking as you celebrate Passover in exile? Gee, I wish this would happen again. You know, we're, we're out of the land again. We need to be delivered again. And so it's, uh, it's done as a memorial enactment, like the sacrifices are, and a memorial enactment for ask, calling on the Lord to do again what he did for Israel when they were in Egypt. So there's this uh, memorial aspect to, this, to these festivals. Um, one, last, uh, one last thing I want to say about Old Testament festivals before it, or a uh, calendar before I go into talking about the church calendar, um, and that is that uh, we have the Torah sets up this calendar in some detail in a variety of different places in the Pentateuch. Uh, uh, there's a lot of information about the the timekeeping uh, and uh, and that's, that, those are the, those are the designated times that Israel keeps throughout her throughout our history. But then as we go through the Old Testament, we find uh, that there is at least one other new festival added. Give me. Um, in, the, in the time of Esther, remember the, the casting of the lots that uh, the Lord oversees in order to save Israel from Haman. Pur is the word for lots. perim, the plural, is the word for lots. And at the end of Esther, Mordecai designates Purim as an annual festival commemorating what the Lord had done for Israel when they were threatened by Haman the Agagite. Okay. Um, who said Mordecai could do that? How does Mordecai get off uh, designating a feast? Is that, does that fit with the regular principle of worship? If, if the Lord hasn't designated that festival... How can, how can they have a festival? Well, that becomes an annual festival for Israel. It still is. Jews celebrate Purim. Um, Hanukkah, of course, is an intertestamental festival that uh, begins with the rededication of the temple after the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, it seems to be, at least according to many commentators, it seems to be the festival that Jesus uh, attends. Not seems to be, I think it very clearly is in, in John 10, 22. At the time of the feast of dedication, the time the feast, at that time, the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple of the Portico of Solomon. The okay. feast of dedication, that's Hanukkah. This is an intertestamental feast, not one that's that's uh, laid out in the Torah. And yet it's a feast uh, commemorating a, another event, a later event in Israel's history. And Jesus is there in Jerusalem to, um, uh, to share in the festivities of the, of the dedication. Okay. Um, so there are feasts added to the calendar, uh, at least on these couple of occasions after the Torah has laid out this annual calendar, this annual schedule, uh, what's going on there? How should we how should we assess that? Um, I would I'd go back to what I said earlier about uh, God uh, uh, God delegating authority over time to the sun moon and stars. That happens in the creation week. God is uh, God is governing day and night directly in the first three days. When he creates the sun moon and stars, he gives them that divine authority to separate day and night, which is he's, which he's been doing, and to govern the day and the night and to designate days and. Uh, years and seasons, and to be signs. Okay. Um, it seems like what's happening in, uh, as you go through the scriptures is God is, uh, God is delegating the authority over time, not just to the sun, moon, and stars, but to human beings. Okay. Uh, the sun, moon, and stars actually did govern Israel's calendar. They would know when to celebrate Passover because of the phases of the moon. So they're actually looking to the sky as their clock to know when to have that appointed time and then things would be counted off from Passover. Uh, but in later stages of uh, history, with Mordecai specifically, it seems like uh, there's, there's no no criticism about Mordecai. He establishes a feast. He's a, he's a leader in Israel and he has the authority to establish uh, a, an annual festival that comes in addition to all the other festivals that Israel's keeping. I think, again, that's, that's a signal that the Lord is... Uh, that the Lord is uh, uh, delegating this authority over time to human beings. Ultimately, of course, Jesus is the one who's the Lord of time. He's the time Lord, you who-heads. Jesus, not Dr. Who is the time Lord. Uh, But I think we're reigning in Christ. We're stars in the heavens. We shine like stars in the heavens. And uh, God has given to us some kind of authority over time now, one indication of this as you go through the Old Testament is the way that uh, uh, years are designated by the beginning of a king's reign. Uh, now, in the second year of so-and-so, of Nebuchadnezzar, eventually the, the Gentiles, the time of the Gentiles later on, late, in, uh, late in the Old Testament, when the Gentiles give their names to the periods of time, prior to that, in the time of the monarchy, it's uh, you know, in, the, in, the, uh, in the second year of the reign of Asa, king of Judah, such and such happened. Uh, he gives his name to the year. Uh, that's a sign of God's uh, elevating human beings as the makers of time, as the shapers of time. Uh, they are the sun, moon, and stars that are now governing time, and that I think is important for addressing uh, for addressing some of the objections that people bring to the practice of a church calendar. Um, you know, uh, the argument sometimes coming from, particularly from Reformed people who hold to a certain version of the regulative principle is uh, that uh, God has not given us any explicit command to keep any day and to gather in holy codification any day except the Lord's Day. And we don't have authority to add other festivals like Advent and Christmas and Epiphany and so on and so forth. Uh, And so we should only keep the Lord's Day. And some will kind of, with a somewhat bad conscience, Make allowances for Christmas and Easter um, uh, for reasons that are not don't seem to be consistent with that kind of the really strict ones. I mean, you'll find Reformed people that are uh, that are really determined to say there is no other festival. They won't celebrate Christmas. Uh, they won't acknowledge Easter or a Day of Resurrection, Jesus' resurrection in in church. Um, they are. Uh, say that, the, and it's based on a conviction that God has designated only that one day. But if uh, the Lord has given human beings authority over time and authority to designate times, uh, then uh, that that relieves some of that problem. That raises other problems surely, but it relieves some of that problem. I think that. Uh, so I think I think the church has been correct to uh, organize not just a, a weekly cycle. But to organize time in larger cycles, annual cycles, and if you look at the way that the church calendar has been uh, practiced over the centuries, it is based on a similar, very similar kinds of foundational principles as as ancient Israelite's calendar. Whether this was explicit or, or conscious on the part of the uh, early church or not, um, but it's uh, the the uh, Christian calendar follows the uh, the. Uh, um, the, the, the uh, not the agricultural cycles, but follows the uh, movement of the year, okay? It's not insignificant that uh, the light begins to dawn in the incarnation with Christmas during the darkest time of the year. And then the days begin to get longer and brighter from uh, about the time that uh, you have celebration of the incarnation. Uh, it's not an accident. That the church has it 's not an accident that Jesus rose from the dead around Passover which is springtime okay? it 's not an accident that the church has associated that resurrection with springtime and seen this harmony of natural and historical events and in some sense is celebrating both and that that 's all rooted in the fact that God created time originally to be uh, have a have this liturgical shape to it so um, the the uh, Christian, the Christian calendar is based on these natural cycles. The Christian calendar obviously is also founded on historical events, as Israel's calendar was, uh, not the historical events of ancient Israel's history, but the historical events, particularly of the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, the church year starts at Advent, in the, uh, in the in four weeks before Christmas. That's commemorating, remembering, celebrating the coming of the Lord. Christmas is Jesus' birth. That's a 12-day, historically a 12-day period, which leads into Epiphany, which commemorates the appearances of Jesus, the the manifestations of Jesus' glory. The baptism is, uh, uh, Jesus' baptism is usually part of Epiphany. The first miracle, Cana, when Jesus first began to show his glory is is a celebrating Epiphany. Uh, that period of Epiphany, when Jesus is showing forth the glory of his Father, uh, leads into Lent, which is a commemoration of the uh, uh, Jesus' um, sufferings, leading into Holy Week, which commemorate his trial and death, and then uh, Easter, celebrating his resurrection. Um, ascension is coming up early May. Uh, 50 days after Easter, after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus ascends into heaven, and then t- 40 days rather, and then 10 days after that, uh, we, have, we celebrate Pentecost, which is the giving of the Spirit. That half year or so is just marching through the life of Jesus. And what that's doing is a couple of things. You, uh, as, as, a, as a child growing up in a liturgical church, a liturgical Lutheran church, um, I went through that cycle of, uh, of holidays every year for the first 18 years of my life. I heard the gospel readings that had to do with with Christmas and Advent. I heard, uh, over year after year, I heard lengthy passages of the Passion Narratives in the Gospels. Uh, I have passages of the Gospels that are more or less committed to memory. I couldn't recite them, but they're extremely familiar. And it's because every year I was just uh, I, not just me, but everybody in the church was passing through these, um, uh, thre- passing through the life of Jesus. There, that's edifying for the for the church. I should say I don't know if I know uh, Luke two, the appearance of the angel to the shepherds because I heard it in church, or because I watched uh, the Charlie Brown Christmas every year. I think I know the Linus version probably of uh, of Luke chapter two. But there's that repetition is edifying for the church. It keeps the focus of things on the central thing, which is Jesus. Uh, it also is, uh, going back again to my overall thesis, it's a redemption of time. Creation is, uh, al- created time is already liturgically patterned. Human beings uh, distort the patterns of time. Abuse the patterns of time imprint uh, 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 their own calendars a calendar that does not allow, for example, slaves to have a day off or animals to have a day off. Uh, human beings imprint that kind of calendar, or a calendar that commemorates uh, events that are wicked and evil, uh, commemorating th- those events, and those become part of the part of the uh, keeping of time. Uh, And the church calendar is a restoration of time to its proper form. It becomes the time of appointed times when we're supposed to appear before God and it is imprinted with the life of Jesus. And that's not a small thing. I mean, we tend to, issues of calendar kind of get backgrounded for us, I think, until somebody wants to make, um, you know, Earth Day, a day of celebration for worldwide and wants to make it as big a deal as Christmas, and everybody has to celebrate Earth Day or some other recent, innovative holiday. Um, when, when those kinds of things come up, then we say, hey, wait a second. You're imposing an alien time on my time. That's, that's not an ideology I want to celebrate. Uh, so, um, um, but when things get fixed on the calendar, then they become part of the pattern of our time. And uh, a change in calendar is a profound change in the cultural imagination. It's not just a, a change in what we call, uh, what we call uh, a particular days. I mean, just uh, think about the cultural shift that is indicated by the fact that we now have a Martin Luther King holiday. Okay. Whatever you think about Martin Luther King, I'm just saying, Think about the difference between 1962 and uh, where we are now. In uh, that's that's a prof- that that's a marker of a profound change in American culture, uh, and it gets fixed as part of our timekeeping when it's put on the calendar. Um, if you uh, uh, have read any uh, Eugen rosenstock husey uh, you know that he's uh, was a uh, rosenstock husey was a uh, 20th century polymath, mainly a, uh, He was trained as a legal historian, but he wrote about everything, and he has a, a massive book called Out of Revolution, which is a history of the West, Western... Uh, an autobiography of Western man is what he calls it, uh, where he's tracing uh, the history of the development of Western civilization by looking at different revolutionary moments. And one of the key pieces of evidence that he's looking at to show that there's a, a, a genuine revolutionary moment is the calendar. Because that means that time is being reimagined when there's a calendrical change. Uh, uh, the calendar registers important events, epical events, uh, more immediately than the, histor- the the history books. You know? It takes time to write a history book about something. Uh, but if you're a French revolutionary, you can, you know, you can change the calendar overnight and begin with year zero again, and try what a 10-day week? What did they? They tried all kinds of things. Uh, revolutionary movements, movements always try to revise the keeping of time, because that's uh, a central aspect of culture. Well, the, the Christian calendar is a, Christ, a literal Christianization of time because we can name the particular time that we're in by reference to Christ. <laughs> uh, right now we're in Easter season. Easter, the day uh, Easter, the day of the resurrection is in the past, but we're still in Easter season up until uh, the time of the ascension. After Pentecost, we go into what sometimes called ordinary time or sometimes called Trinity season, a long period that is uh, uh, after, after the Father has revealed himself in his Son in the Incarnation, poured out his Spirit at Pentecost. Uh, then we move into Trinity and we have an extended period of Meditation on the God who has revealed Himself and is Father, Son, and Spirit. So, um, <clears throat> so that when we when we start learning to keep our time by that rhythm, we're learning to keep our time by the by the life of Christ, and we're learning to name different periods of our year by the life of Christ. And that's another that's another cycle on the uh, in addition to the uh, weekly cycle of. Gathering for worship. So uh, bring this to a close and then we'll take a break. Uh, This is a good illustration of what I started with yesterday morning, uh, which is that uh, the liturgy is not just a source for the Christianization of culture, but is itself the first Christianization of culture. So a time is a created reality. A time is patterned according to certain cultural forms. And the liturgical time, the, the liturgical calendar is a Christianization, keeping that liturgical calendar is itself a Christianization of our timekeeping. Uh, and in you know, um, that has effects outside of the church, it has missional effects. Um, for instance, um, there were a lot of people, a lot of nations that celebrated the year 2000 have no real connection with Christianity. Why celebrate the year 2000? Everybody thinks that this is the year 2000. Because Jesus is the time Lord and the Christian way of keeping time, of counting years for many, many nations, not all nations, but many, many nations, uh, has become a Christian way of keeping time. So the church keeps this calendar. The church keeps time according to, according to Christ's, uh, work and that uh, spills over and our aim is that the entire world will be patterned by the time of the church. All right, Uh, I'll give you 20 minutes. Aren't I generous? And then uh, come back at 3.30 and we'll have our last discussion. Um, We'll take time to discuss questions at that point.